Hello, I'm Seth. Recording. Hi, Seth. How are you, Seth? Hey, right, Seth. So I'm going to record <laughs> on Zoom. Now, Seth, don't be monkeying around with this recording. Yeah, Seth. Um, He's going to put a monkey in here if you do that. He'll, he'll probably make this part right here the teaser. <laughs> make it the... Don't tease. Or he won't, or he won't <laughs> now that I've said it. Or he might. <laughs> Only God knows, because God ordained before the foundations of the he, earth exactly he knows what. All. Well, hello and welcome to another seafaring episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. This limited series we're doing on the various things that Catholics believe about Mary and how we used to think about them when we were all Protestants and how we have come to think about them now as Catholics. I'm Matt Swaim. I was a Wesleyan, Methodist, Free Methodist, Nazarene, even spent some time with some Restorationists. Kenny Burchard, my colleague, Director of Development at the Coming Home Network. He was a Foursquare pastor and a church planner. Ken Hensley was a Baptist pastor for many years, uh, and we all ended up coming to accept what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. So we're going to dig into that today. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. I'm doing, yeah. I was going to say great, but that word's already been taken, so. It's already been I'm taken. Well. Terrific. Superb. Now. <laughs> we're, uh, we're very... Uh, adjective heavy rolling into just the first few seconds of this episode. If you want to find out what we're up to, if you're a person who is interested in the Catholic faith at any level, then by all means reach out to us at chnetwork.org. That's where you can find lots of previous episodes of On the Journey. That's where you can also connect with our online community. If you want to go directly to that, that's community.chnetwork.org. And if you want to support this work so that uh, nobody who comes to us looking for questions or for answers to questions about the Catholic faith so that none of them have to pay a nickel for anything. Uh, we can do that if you support what we do. So go to chnetwork.org slash compass to support this and other projects. Okay, gents. So previously in this series, we have talked about a couple of Marian dogmas. Mary, the mother of God. We did a lot of stuff on that. We did a lot of stuff on the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, we're just basically going to have to break up the Immaculate Conception into a couple of episodes. Uh, so we're only going to get so far today. Hopefully we can lay some good groundwork for the next one. Uh, but I'm going to just start by just reading what it says on the paper. So, y'all ready? We're ready. Ready or not. All right. Try not to cringe. Put yourself <laughs> back in your pre previous Pentecostal you know, headspace, your previous Baptist headspace, and try not to cringe when I read you what the church actually teaches about the Immaculate Conception. So here it goes. This is straight out of the Catechism. The dogma proclaimed in Christian tradition and defined in 1854 that from the first moment of her conception, Mary, by the singular grace of God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, was preserved immune from original sin. So this is, uh, this is a little bit more on this. It says, through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, 
savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Actually, it doesn't sound as bad when you just read it. But I would still have a lot of objections as a Protestant. So, how did you think about this before you were Catholic? Who wants to go first? We're going to start with Ken. Let's start with Ken. I was going to say, Matt, it doesn't sound that bad since you've been a Catholic for many, many years now. Um, I've warmed up to it. Well, of course, I thought it was nonsense. And when I was a Protestant, and I thought it was nonsense, that's what I understood of it, for all the usual reasons. You know, um, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There you have it. Done. Deal's over. Um, I want to describe, since this is narrative apologetics we do here and we're telling our stories, I I want to say a bit more about this, though, about how um, this begins to turn in, in my mind. Early on in my study of Catholicism, you guys, one thing that became clear to me slowly was that when we deal with Catholicism and Protestantism, we're dealing really with two worldviews. I mean, they're both they're they're both about Christ, and they're both teaching Christianity, but very different worldviews. And it, it's not merely that that Protestants and Catholics hold some different doctrines. Um, Protestants and Catholics hold different views of how doctrine is to be determined. Different views of how we know what we know. I guess you could say different theological epistemologies, if you want to make it fancy. Um, in fact, Matt, maybe you remember, but at the beginning of our series on Sola Scriptura some two years ago, I used this uh, analogy or illustration. When I think of Catholics, or when I began to, what I began to see, and this is early on, is that when we think of Catholics and Protestants debating doctrine, it's like two people standing on the beach debating the color of the sunset, while one of them is wearing r- rose-colored uh, shades and the other one's wearing amber colored shades you know you're you're looking at the data through different glasses different pairs of glasses you have different presuppositions there's a different way of actually determining what is the color of the sunset or or they're like two carpenters that are saying okay well let's measure this board and let's find out how long it is and lo and behold one of them i mean lo and behold they're using two different standards of measurement so as a protestant of course my principle was the Bible alone. Uh, my, my attitude was that I open my Bible, I read my Bible, and when it comes to Mary, I think of what you said, Matt, a couple weeks ago. You know, I just look at my concordance and go to M and look up all the passages on Mary, and I just sort of add them all together, and I say, this is what I believe. And when it comes to something like Immaculate Conception, I could have said, or I might have said, well, it's possible, of course, that God did something special with Mary. It's possible. But I've gone to all the M's and I've looked at all the M's on Mary and, I've, and I, I don't see it. You know, um, It's possible that it's true. But on the basis of my looking at the Bible alone, how can I know that it's true? How can I know? But Catholics, of course, or as a Catholic now, my principle of authority is different because now authority for me rests in the interworking of sacred scripture sacred tradition, and the church's voice, the, the magisterium of the church. In fact, just quickly, here's how Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation from Vatican II, puts it. Sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together together 
that one cannot stand without the other. Sacred scripture, tradition, the magisterium, it's saying one doesn't really stand without the other. They don't just stand independently. It says here that all together and each in its own way under the action of the Holy Spirit contributes effectively to the salvation of souls. Okay, so why am I talking about this early on in our episode, the beginning of our episodes on Immaculate Conception? Well, when I think about the various doctrines and dogmas of the Catholic faith, I think that some of these doctrines and dogmas have been defined on the basis, I mean, these doctrines and dogmas have been defined on the basis of Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. Some of them you can see very easily in Scripture alone. Others, it requires this interworking of Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium to bring them home. And because of this, while some of the teachings of the church, I think, can be easily demonstrated just from the Bible alone, I think Mary is the mother of God is one of those. You know, all we have to do is look look at some passages and say, this is demonstrated, divine maternity. She's the mother of God because the child born to her, the person born to her was God. Other dogmas and doctrines of the Catholic faith require us to take into account scripture, tradition, and magisterium to put the picture together and to come to real conviction that they're true. And uh, just as a different illustration, I would include as an example of this, um, the idea or the my belief that the 27 books in our New Testament are inspired. I can't know this just by opening my Bible and reading it. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell me this. And I can't know it for sure by looking at the early church, by looking at sacred tradition, because there were disagreements there. In order to know and have conviction that these 27 books are the New Testament, the inspired New Testament, I have to look to the interworking of Scripture, tradition, and the voice of the Church. The magisterium of the Church is the bishops met in synods and made this final determination on the books. And I think this applies to the Marian doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And the reason I wanted to begin with this is simply to say this. We're going to be looking at Mary's Immaculate Conception we're going to begin by looking at the biblical material, and while I believe now that the biblical material in support of this dogma is far richer than I ever imagined when I was still a Protestant, deeper, richer, bigger, stronger, better than I ever imagined, I have some, I have sympathy with a simple uh, Bible Christian who just wanders into the Bible and looks up all the M's and says, I don't see it. I have some sympathy, and so I can only encourage our Protestant listeners and viewers to understand that we, yes, we are coming from a different place, and, it, and yes, we as Catholics now have a different conception of, of, of how theology is put together, how doctrines and dogmas are put together, and I just hope that they will listen and watch with an openness to this as we deal with this over the next few weeks. I think that we all three have sympathy with people <laughs> who who come from that place, because we wouldn't be... De- going on record is saying all this stuff that we used to think if, uh, well, if we didn't used to think it. So, uh, this is, uh, these are the lenses, as you say, um, that we bring to the reading and, uh, we were all solo scriptura guys. So that mattered. It mattered. It was actually the only thing that mattered. So, uh, Kenny, I guess that's a good jumping off place for where you're coming from on this question. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I remember 
thinking that the language immaculate conception was about Jesus. And I think there m- might be people who aren't Catholics who may, may be non-Catholics. Once again, Kenny, I must, uh, without spoiling too much, tell you that it is in fact all about Jesus, the whole it's doctrine of the Immaculate about Conception. Jesus. So, right. yeah. Well, but but what I mean by that is that I thought that when Christians used the language Immaculate Conception, they were saying Jesus was born of a virgin and that he was born sinless. And I, when I was pastoring in a town that had a Catholic school. Uh, called Mary Immaculate Queen, M-I-Q. And I remember asking, what does M-I-Q stand for? And someone told me it stands for Mary Immaculate Queen. And I said, what does that mean? Well, it's the Immaculate Conception that Mary was, uh, you know, conceived, as you read, without the stain of original sin. And I remember taking that to our church and, you know, kind of making fun of this M-I-Q School with their Mary Immaculate Queen name, you know, down the yeah. street. Yeah. And I could, I could get out my Pentecostal preacher muscles right here and, you know, put on my Billy Graham voice and say, but the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, wave your hanky and easy. Just dismiss that one right out of hand. There it is. You know, it's gone with one verse. But like Ken, I discovered that over the course of time, I wasn't reading the Bible with the church. I I was imagining that the Bible didn't emerge up out of the soil of the church over time, that I could just pick it up and read it and accept or dismiss doctrines on the basis of what I read, not realizing that, that the church has this living memory of Mary, that it knows Mary. Mary was in the early church. She was there with them on on Pentecost. And so there's a living memory of Mary that carries forward. And so when, as we'll see when we read the fathers, when the church was reading the Bible, they were reading things about Mary that came out of their living memory that I had amnesia about. I didn't have access to it. Um, I was cut off from it. So the way I thought about the language of immaculate conception when I heard that it was attributed to Mary is just that it was completely ridiculous. Um, now, it was also one of the dogmas that I had to wrestle with before I was going to become a Catholic. Now, I, I had to do the work. You might remember I said in the first episode in the series, if I couldn't solve the Mary questions, I couldn't become Catholic. So I had to look at this, and hopefully I'll be able to share some things from Scripture today that were helpful to me. So you both gave your sort of intro to your upcoming remarks here. So that's your that's We your, think your of it preface. as a preamble. We think a of it preamble. as a preamble. <laughs> I think Kenny, Kenny used a different word here in the text. <laughs> Prolegomena. <laughs> because you said yeah. that, I brought a prop. Okay. See, uh, you're, you're talking about your pro Lego maritime stuff. I brought my yeah. ship in a bottle, so my pro Lego ship in a maritime. Yeah, I, 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 I was thinking. I was thinking. There's a four square pastor for you. He knows what the word prolegomenon means, but he doesn't know what immaculate conception is. There it is. There it is. <laughs> yeah, you can't be perfect so, at everything. <laughs> well, um, because you're not Mary. So uh, <laughs> let's. Before getting into all the rest of that stuff, uh, let's uh, figure out then what we're going to do with the biblical material because we do have some stuff um, 
as we all believe, we didn't have enough stuff, but we do have some things, and the church actually makes reference to some of these things in the way that she goes about teaching on the Immaculate Conception. So what do we do? Yeah, actually, actually, Kenny's going to handle this mainly today, but I just want to say something that's rather humorous. I woke up last night, literally, around 2 o'clock, I woke up, and I, was th- I, I lay there in bed thinking, we have too much material for this, for, th- for this episode. We have way too much because Kenny was going to develop a major theme from Scripture, and then I was going to develop a major theme from Scripture, and I just thought, it's too much. And I actually thought about it for a while, and I thought, how can I whittle down what I'm going to say so it will fit in just at the end, like the last three minutes of the episode or something? And then I get up this morning, and I turn on my computer, and there's a message from Kenny, red alert, red alert. The more I think about it, we've got way too much material. We cannot handle it. So anyway, that that's just a way of saying that uh, Kenny's going to handle his... Uh, his portion of this really today, and I'm going to swing back next week with more. And so, Kenny, you've got the floor. Yeah, that's great. I, I think, you know, it's important to me, it was important to me on my journey into the Catholic Church because I had spent so many years studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, going to a biblical seminary, getting a degree in New Testament, and, and wanting to have a biblical faith that I, I didn't want to believe things that were unbiblical or anti-biblical or non-biblical. And I hope as people listen to this um, sort of treatise on biblical material that they'll realize that the Marian dogma of her Immaculate Conception is not unbiblical, it's not non-biblical, and it's not anti-biblical, but really it fits within the arc of the biblical story. So the way that we want to touch on this dogma is through the lens of biblical theology. And what we mean by that isn't theology that is orthodox and biblical, but rather theology that can be seen as a theme or a narrative emerges over the arc of the entire biblical story. And this, guys, is the way that I worked through this specific dogma. I was greatly helped uh, by a book by uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, titled Daughter Zion. And in the beginning of this book, he says, we're not going to proof text our way through the Marian dogmas. And in fact, he admits that can't be done. Rather, he says, we're going to look at the story of Scripture. We're going to see the story of Scripture as it unfolds, and we're going to try to identify Mary inside of that story using some tools. And that's what I want to do today. Uh, I want to ask, who is Mary? Who is she? Through the lens of biblical theology. And the answer right up front is that Mary is woman. Mary is woman. She is woman in her idealized, created intent, God's created intentions for what woman would be in his creation is who Mary is. Now, how do we say that? Um, Well, employing the tools of biblical theology, looking for this mega theme as it emerges over the arc of the biblical story, It's there. It's there crystal clear. And so I want to work through just a few texts of Scripture that I think provide kind of some scaffolding or a matrix for how to see Mary as woman and how by seeing her as woman, idealized woman, that this idea, this dogma, that she is born 
without original sin makes perfect sense. Okay, so you guys ready? Because if you are, I'm jumping off. I'm we buckling got, up. <laughs> we're, we're skiing so, on the moguls uh, today. Now, please, if you would, Kenny, walk us through the entire arc of salvation history using the entire Bible. So I'll just, I'll, just, uh, I'll hold my yeah, thoughts sure. to the end. Yeah, sure. Uh, in, 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 you know, four or five sentences, here's how to do that. <laughs> but this is, this is, this can be really helpful because when we're doing, when we're doing biblical theology, we want to say, well, how does this idea fit the biblical story? Does it? Or doesn't it fit the biblical story? And Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, was so helpful to me in seeing how this works. So he says, let's find Mary. Let's find Mary in the biblical story. He says, we can start at the beginning in his book. We can start at the beginning, or we could start at the end. And what I kind of want to do to jump off here, I want to cover, I'm going to look at five sections of scripture. First Galatians, then Genesis, then uh, John's gospel, then a little bit of Revelation, and then end with Luke. Those five, okay? Galatians, Genesis, uh, uh, some John's Gospel, a little bit of Revelation, and Luke. Jumping off, uh, Galatians. Um, biblical texts were written at different times. The book of Galatians happens to be the, the portion of Scripture that mentions Mary that's written before any other documents in the New Testament that mention her. But they don't mention Mary by name. Galatians doesn't mention Mary by name. It mentions her in another way. Let me read it to you from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Remember, we're asking the question, who is Mary? And we're answering, Mary is woman. That's who she is. Well, in Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5, Paul says this, But when the time had fully come, that is this crescendo of salvation history, coming to its crescendo, its conclusion, this, this epic event is coming into a crescendo. When that time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we have here the whole biblical story, this temporal narrative of this fullness of time, and then woman, think of this, included in the economy of salvation. Now, if you read some of the later reformers and anti-Catholic thinkers on this, they'll say things like, see, Paul doesn't care who Mary is. It's just important that God picks a woman because you got to get this Jesus born. So we got to find a woman. So so in my previous anti-Catholic way of thinking about this text, he just calls her woman because she doesn't. it doesn't matter who she is. Well, we're going to see that it actually does matter. It's a specific woman, as we'll see. But she is woman. She is the embodiment of the idealized woman uh, based on God's created intentions for woman. So, so, now we have woman at the center of Paul's economy of salvation for bringing about this moment in the fullness of time where the Son can be born into the world to redeem humanity so that we can be adopted in God's family. It's going to require the, partici the participation of woman. Okay, now that's key. So now we have a biblical mega-theme that Paul is giving us in Galatians. And so remember, in biblical theology, we ask, 
How does this theme emerge over the arc of the story? Well, now we can take what Paul says about woman and go back. Remember, we're going to start at the end. Now go back to the beginning. Okay, we got to find woman in the biblical story because she, at the fullness of time, brings forth this son who redeems. Let's go looking for woman in the biblical story at the beginning. And we find her in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We find some important things about woman. Okay, In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, there we have the creation account where the crowning um, moment of creation is where God creates mankind in his own image. And in verse 27, it says this in Genesis 1, so God created man or mankind or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, listen, male and female, he created them. Okay, so humanity is male and female, man and woman, man and woman together equal the entire image-bearing humanity. It's both of them. It's not either or, but it's both. So humans are male and female. They together comprise the whole image-bearing human race. Okay, what about them? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 25, the camera uh, zooms in on this first couple, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and the creation of woman in relationship to man is spelled out for us. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good. By the way, the first thing God says isn't good in the Bible. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit to him or suitable for him. So out of the ground, he forms every beast of the field, etc. And the man can't find any one of those those creatures that fits him. Uh, So God creates woman for man. It says a deep sleep fell upon the man, and while he was asleep, he took one of the God took one of the ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now listen, the man says, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called. Now if I was preaching in my church, I'd say, She shall be called and I'd go like this, and all the people would say, woman! And that's exactly what is said in the text of Genesis uh, chapter 2. If I could two. just pause you, I would have gotten that answer wrong if I were in your congregation, Kenny. What would you have said? I would have said, she shall be called Eve, and right. I would have been wrong. And you would have been wrong, right. So now we have we have these anchor points in the biblical story, right? We have Paul taking us to the 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 high point in salvation history, the incarnation of the Son of God through this person that he calls woman. So he gives us this this archetypal language. Um, somebody's face needs to fit in to that 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 picture that Paul has cut. So can we go back and find woman? Well, woman is found in the garden. She is the helper, the suitable helper to the man who, with him, together with him, in union with him, are the image of God in the world together as the human race. So the man and the woman together are the image of God embodied on planet Earth. This is the reality that we find in the biblical story. 
But then something happens. It says in Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 6, that the serpent was more subtle than any of the wild creatures that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of the tree of garden? And they have this back and forth. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees, but God said you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. And they go through this whole back and forth. And what we find is that it says, the woman saw that the fruit, let me, let me find my place here. Uh, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband and he ate. Okay. Wow. We have a lot of stuff here. Let, let, let me point out some things that we have and hopefully we're going to tune our ears to the biblical story. What do we have? We have a creation story. God's creating male and female imagers, a man and a woman who both together image God. We have a visit to a woman by some being from the other world, from the heavenly realm, some kind of serpent creature, some kind of supernatural being visiting the woman, speaking to the woman about something related to God, and the woman going to a tree, getting something from the tree, and giving what's on that tree to her husband and bringing the whole human race into ruin, she brings her she herself and her husband to separation from God, to death, and to the grave. And that's what the first humans do in God's creation. So they are the prototypes in biblical theology. You have when you're doing typology, you have three things. You have a prototype. That's the first one. Then you have types, which are kind of like the first one. And then you have archetypes, which are the full idealized embodiment of what the prototype was supposed to be. But Adam and Mary, now they, they fall to the role in typology of prototypes because they're not idealized. They don't get there. Uh, one of my favorite biblical theologians was Gerhardus Voss, and he says in uh, his book on biblical theology that, that Adam and Eve are created very good, but that it's an unconfirmed goodness. Their goodness hasn't been tested yet, and so when the test comes of their goodness, they fail. Now, now please get this point here. Adam and Eve are created how? without the stain of original sin. They are brought into existence not having original sin. And the question is, do they sin? Uh, the answer is yes. question is, why? Um, you know, like we talk together about why we sin, and the, the, the knee-jerk response, why we sin, is, well, because we have original sin. Okay, well, why did Adam and Eve sin? They don't have original sin. The reason is they choose against the grace that God had given them to be his image in the world. It's there, all the grace is there, but they go against it. They, they enact their will, their volition against the will of God and bring ruin upon the whole world. But now we can find in the Bible, at the very beginning of the story, a man and a woman who live in the world by a creative action of God, under God's grace, 
who do not have the stain of original sin until they sin against God by listening to the voice of the adversary. And so, in biblical theology, what we want to see as we talk about salvation is how can that scene that we end with in Genesis, with this man and woman being ushered out of God's presence, going into their graves and dying, how can that scene be reversed? How can we reverse the story so that it goes to a better place than it's going so far? And I have a few other, I have three other texts I want to look at. Can I just throw something in uh, real quick? Good place to pause. Yeah, go ahead. While, while we're still on Genesis, I, I mentioned that I would have answered that question wrong as a member of your congregation when you said, you know, he called her what? Uh, didn't call her Eve. As a matter of fact, uh, just to go back to the, all the stuff that you're saying about archetypes and and prototypes and typology and 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 just how important those words man and woman are going to be along the way. You know, the first time that the woman is referred to as Eve, it's in Genesis uh, 3 at, after the fall. <laughs> after <laughs> right? the fall. That's right. Um, and actually in the Revised Standard Version, or the New Revised Standard Version, uh, the man uh, is not translated as Adam until like Genesis 4-something. Right. So, I mean, these are these are not yeah. merely just Adam and Eve two people. They are they are indicative of this much larger, bigger story, and that's going to come to play in a bunch of the other stuff that you're going to be referring to here in a little bit. That's yeah, exactly and, right, Ken. You wanted to say to something to, too. Yeah, to, to add to what your your emphasis on this theme of woman, beginning with Galatians four and then going back to Genesis. My understanding is I don't have the text in front of me, but my understanding is the first woman that she's referred to in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, something like 11 times as woman and only one time as Eve. Yeah, at the end, right. after the fall. Right. And this language of woman then, if I can say it this way, I'm, I'm, I'm telegraphing a little bit. We would expect Paul and Jesus to be good biblical theologians when they, when they talk about Mary. And we would include, and, and we would expect them to know, uh, or to, or to see things in this way in terms of the, the big picture or the big story that's being told. And so, and that's what we find. Um, and, and as we'll see in a moment, that this word woman is something that recurs multiple times in the New Testament, in, out of the lips of Jesus himself and uh, in Revelation and also in the other Gospels. And so I want to kind of unpack that a little bit, but, but, but please see see the, the milestones, the markers, and the language here. We have a male and a female, right? And they together are the human race. They are the image of God in the world. And you have a supernatural invasion, if you will, or visitation from uh, some being that brings about a message from the other side, but it's the bad, it's a bad message and it's believed and acted upon by the woman. And she goes to the tree and she gets the fruit and she gives it to the man. And that brings about death and burial, death and burial. That's what happens. Adam and and Eve, the man and the woman, they both die and they go into the ground and that's where they stay. Uh, and so now what we have to do is we have to reverse this. If humanity is going to be raised up out of that death, out of that grave, uh, out of that return to the dust, then someone has to un-Adam-Adam Adam, and someone has to un-Eve-Eve. Eve. 
We need, now we need antitypes. Okay. We need somebody who does the opposite of what these two do in the garden so that we can have a new creation, a new humanity, a new version of the image bearers, the imagers of God in the world that can lead humanity where humanity was always supposed to go. So how do we get there? Well, there's, there's lots of different ways to do this, but I want to just look at a few texts in um, the New Testament, taking with us this imagery that we've gotten from the Old Testament, which uh, which puts at the top place, the top tier in reference to uh, the female um, humanity as woman, that as, as the Old Testament unfolds, other um, images or other insights are attached to woman, and we're going to see those in the new. But for instance, woman, that's that's th- sort of the, the top category. Then you have virgin, you have bride, you have mother, you have daughter, you have judge and warrior. I mean, there's some warrior princesses in the, in the Old Testament. You have queen and queen mother. These are all types that you see in the lives of actual women in salvation history in the Old Testament who come on the scene and they participate in different ways and they're echoes of God's ideal for woman that shine through in each of their lives based on who they are, either as virgin or bride or mother or daughter or judge or warrior or queen or queen mother. But they're all types. And what I mean by that is they have some of the stuff, you know, of, of God's created intent, but not all of the stuff. So they've got some of what the prototype has, but they're not archetypes. In other words, none of them fully embodies. None of them fills up this word woman completely. None of them, if you, if you poured out what they were into the container called woman, would fill it all the way up to the edge. So we still have this, we have this cutout as, as it were, the shadow cutout with the word woman on it. And whose face, whose face fits into that cut out perfectly, whose face goes there so that the embodiment of what woman is always meant to be by God can be seen by us in an actual person. All right, here we are in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at John, Revelation, and Luke, and that'll be my contribution to the initial discussion here. John chapter 1 through 2.11 is a section of um, the gospel that many biblical scholars, Catholic and not, have seen as a new creation narrative, complete with language and echoes of Genesis, okay? Beginning with what? In, in John chapter 1, in the beginning, as we have in Genesis, in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning was the word. So John is putting us on track onto a new creation narrative. Remember, we're going to un-Adam Adam, and we're going to un-Eve Eve. So we need a man and a woman to step into their place and reverse what they've done. And so John does it through a succession of days, a combination and succession of days. He uses this literary device, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Then we get into chapter two, and it's on the third day, which is in a in another series or the end of another series of days. And at on this third day, or on this day in John chapter one, 
It says there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, when I wasn't a Catholic, I looked at that text and I said, See, see how Jesus dismisses his mother with this word, woman. And I was kind of tapping into maybe some American machismo uh, that you hear sometimes in our culture where you want to, quote, put a woman in her place. What you do uh, when you want to do that is you say, you say, woman, and that's supposed to, you know, make her cower and, you know, put her head down and say, gosh, I, I guess I stepped out of bounds here. And it's actually Calvin. Uh, Calvin says that in his writings, he says that that's what Jesus is doing here. He says, notice how Jesus doesn't call her mother. Now the narrator does. The narrator calls her his mother. Calvin says, but no, not Jesus. He calls her woman because she needs to come down a few notches. Well, wait a second. Um, what does the Bible say about woman? It, it's She is, woman is, the other half of the image-bearing humanity. So as Catholics, we say, no, no, Jesus doesn't uh, knock his mom down a few notches. What he actually does is raise her up above what the narrator says about her. The narrator says, the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus. Well, mother fits under the the heading of woman in terms of roles that women have. In other words, in order to be a mother, you have to be a woman. So what Jesus does is he gives his mother the place in the biblical narrative that she belongs in. He calls her woman. And Catholics see this, and the church through the ages have, have seen what Jesus does here, and there's some telegraphing going on here. Jesus is telling us who this is. This woman is woman, and that's what he calls her. He calls her the same thing that Paul calls her in the book of Galatians. Now, but watch what happens. She tells him they have no wine. He says, woman, it's not yet my hour. Now, if he was telling her by calling her woman, hey, back off, lady, I'm not doing what you say, then, then she would not have said, do whatever he tells you. The next line would have been something like, well, gosh, I'm really sorry, son. Sorry. You're right. You know, you're you're sorry in charge here. You. Yes, I'm sorry to bother you. And then the narrator, see how Jesus puts his mother in place. But no, no, you almost have to have kind of a uh, the ability to imagine uh, how this narrative is looking in order to make sense of this dialogue. Uh, woman, he says to his mother, it is not yet my hour. Um, because she's about to ask him to do something that's going to get him on the radar in a much bigger way than he's been in his whole life. And all of the commentators and scholars say this is the first miracle of Jesus uh, in chronology that he ever performs, is the changing of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And Mary asks him to do 
that miracle. And he says, it's not my hour yet. What does this have to do with me? And she looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do, which by the way, is what Mary wants for all of us. She wants us to follow Jesus because it's all about Jesus. But, but Mary is saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And then Jesus does the miracle. If we can say it this way, he, he answers yes to her intercession, to her request uh, for action. And his dialogue with her elevates her to the place in the biblical story that she fits. She is woman. She is the woman who idealizes God's full creative intentions for the human race. So I'm going to pause right there and let you yeah, guys, I gotta, guys give any Yeah, feedback. I got to say, y- 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 this is going to be a little bit shotgun, Kenny, but but oh, okay, I hear what you're doing there in John. Y- you mentioned the new creation. You didn't mention this, but I, I just want to fill this in. In the first creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have seven days of creation spelled out that culminate in this day of rest, but they culminate as well with this wedding of, of, of Adam and Eve. And here in John, my understanding is you have seven days again, beginning with, in the beginning was the word. You have seven days counted. You were talking about this kind of device that John uses. If yes. you add up the days, there are also seven days in John leading up to the story of Cana and the miracle that happens. But there are a few other images that are kind of popping into my mind. Um, when Adam and Eve fall, Eve Eve brings the fruit to Adam, and he decides he's free as well. He decides to eat it, and they fall. And, and so it's interesting that here you have the woman uh, dealing with fruit again in a way. I mean, here you have the woman saying they need wine, and and he says yes, and something positive is happening. It's, it's sort of like mirror images going on here of the, the fruit and the fall, and then the fruit and the and and salvation really and the positive but one other passage is popping into my mind where where after god pronounced the curse in genesis 3 on the man the woman and the serpent um he talks about how he will put enmity between the woman and the serpent and between her seed and the serpent and then about you know the crushing the head uh, he will he will bruise your heel but he will crush your, I mean, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will, the seed will crush his head. And so here also, I'm just thinking from the things you've said here, I'm thinking about the fact that God said that between the woman and the serpent, there would be this tension or this enmity. And also between the woman's seed, which ultimately is Jesus, there would be this tension, there would be this enmity. And so, yeah, I mean, this is adding up that when Jesus says woman, uh, you know, and then he performs this miracle, there are flashbacks in my mind going back to the Garden of Eden, definitely. He's basically referring to Mary as though she is the woman in the garden. She's the one ultimately, right? Is this what you're saying? I, I, absolutely. Um, and this has, been, this has been something that uh, both ancient and modern uh, biblical scholars have seen here to the point where some of them have come up with this language um, that that Mary is helping. Now think of this: Mary is helping Jesus to his cross. This is language that certain Catholic biblical scholars have come up with. Uh, she helps him to his cross. Well, what does Eve do? She helps. 
She helps her husband to a tree, and he dies and goes into the grave. And as we'll see in John's narrative, Mary, by if you can say it this way, pushing the first domino in the, in the whole train of events, is also bringing uh, this man, Jesus, who is the second Adam, she's bringing him to a tree as well. He'll get to his hour and to a grave, but to his resurrection, to his cross, to his grave, and to his resurrection. And so remember what I said in the biblical story, if we've got a man and a woman who fall and fail, then we need a man and a woman who unfall and unfail them by walking in the reverse or the recapitulation and reversal of their footsteps. And John sets up his gospel perfectly so that man, Jesus, and woman, Mary, step into the feet, you know, the footprints and into the footsteps of Adam and Eve and walk them out of their fallenness. Yeah, and not to say that God couldn't have done it another way, right? That he couldn't have just said poof, but God is an artist, right? <laughs> he is a he is creating a symphony and a masterpiece where there are themes that come up and crescendo and harmonize. Uh, yes. And that's essentially what salvation history looks like. But just to go back to something that Ken had said earlier about glasses uh, in regard to uh, how I read this passage before and how it sort of dawned on me what was going on at Cana and in John's gospel in general. You know, we all bring our lenses uh, to the reading of the scripture. And I just know that if I were to, uh, being someone who is from the South, refer to my mother as woman, right, in that way, as you had previously indicated early, earlier, Kenny, then I probably would not have seen my mother for two or three days. And then I would have seen her just a little bit, but probably only out of my left eye. So right. I'm just saying that, and what's fascinating too, is that if the only gospel that we had was John's gospel, I don't want to spoil too much in case you're already planning to go here, but if we didn't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we had the contents of salvation preserved in only one gospel, and that was John's gospel, you and me and all of us as good soul of scripture of Protestants would not know Jesus's mom's name because in John's gospel, she is only ever referred to as the mother of Jesus or yes. woman. And she is woman. never referred to right. by name, much like Adam and Eve aren't referred to by name until after the fall. <laughs> it's kind of a right. wild concept. And John being the most mystical of the gospel writers is not doing any of this by accident. He's trying to show you What's the bigger story here? What's the bigger picture of what's happening? It's why, uh, you know, Matthew's like, well, here's how Jesus was born, right? And uh, Luke is like, well, you know, here's how Jesus was conceived. And then yes. John's like, well, in the beginning was the word, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and, and the word was made. What all and the of word these... was made flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, totally. Yeah, go ahead. Well, what, what all of these biblical authors, um, Paul and John and Luke and all the all the folks in the who write who write the New Testament, what they're all doing is they're writing scripture, but they're being theologians. They're telling a story, and especially in the Gospels, they are announcing the good news. Well, what's the good news in John's Gospel? Well, start at the beginning. In the beginning, that's a creation. That's a creation uh, uh, language. There. What's what's John telegraphing? A new creation is happening. So he's going to use some Genesis language and some Genesis um, uh, allusions and references. He's going to have God 
saying things and doing things by speaking. He's going to have days unfolding, and he's going to have imagers, male and female, man and woman, who he's got he's got the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us as a man. And then he has this man saying to his mother, woman. And as we said, the biblical theologians and, and Catholic scholars have said, there is where Mary begins to help Jesus to the tree, to the cross, where he will save humanity, whereas Eve brings her husband to the tree that ruins the human race. And so this is where now we're doing biblical theology and using the tools of typology. Remember, uh, prototype, types, and archetypes. And where is now now one of the things we have to say here is well but isn't this about the immaculate conception of mary that she is as the church has taught created by god uh, and through an act of his grace only is brought into the world without the stain of original sin yes and the way that we get there is biblical theology by asking has god ever brought a woman into the world before as a creative act under his grace without the stain of original sin. Can we find one anywhere in the Bible? Well, sure we can. A woman in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, who's later called Eve. So again, if we're going to save humanity, we're going to bring humanity out of its fallen state, we need woman brought into the world as an act of God's grace and new creation without the stain of original sin to bring about the reversal of the fall as God's co-laborer, his partner in the saving mission uh, of God. Now, what happens? What, what, what's the, um, what do other biblical authors do with, with woman? Well, actually, John does something else with woman in the Apocalypse. In the book of Revelation, he talks about woman again. And I'll just do two more references to, to Scripture to kind of bring my part in for a landing here, guys. And one is in Revelation chapter 12, where we find this uh, archetypal language of woman used again by John. And it's in Revelation chapter 12. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled to the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Okay, not going to exegete all that, but say, here's here we have typology uh, and an archetype that becomes embodied in an actual person. And so the scholars and commentators have said that you have both uh, a person figured here in the woman, but also a people, the people of God, the nation of Israel, perhaps the church, or both. But then you have these other characters who are real, actual characters. Michael, the archangel, the, the devil, the dragon, and this son who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so if you're going to give them all 
an embodied personhood uh, where they are the representative person of a people, well, then the same thing, you do the same thing with the woman. Yes, the typology there refers to the whole people of God, but this woman has a son, and this son is raised up to God's throne and rules the nations with a rod of iron. Again, whose face goes into the place of the woman in this text, if not Mary? Uh, And Jesus put her in that place, and so did Paul in Galatians. She is the woman. She is woman. She is the embodiment of God's created intentions for for women, and she is raised up to that high place. So again, in, so again, in the Genesis narrative, you see the dragon coming to the woman, and then after the fall, you have the promise of salvation, the Proto-Evangelium. You have the promise of salvation that God will put enmity between the woman and the dragon, or between the woman and serpent, and between her seed and the serpent seed. And so now all the way, you go to Revelation 12, and we have a woman again, and we have a dragon again, and there's definitely enmity between the two. And w- when you say this thing about whose face fits in, then, okay, you've got, yes, I, I see there's an Adam and an Eve at the beginning, and you have Jesus as the new Adam, and clearly, even though this phrase is not used in the New Testament, Mary is that woman. Mary is that the woman described whose seed um, will crush the head of the serpent. She's a new Eve, even though that phrase is not used. That's right. Uh, and and I'll just do I'll just do one more little little sort of biblical connection here, and then toss it back to you, Matt, so that we can see what some of the early church thinkers did with all of this theology, this biblical theology we're talking about. But um, we're saying, the church is saying, that by a creative act and through his grace and through the, the saving work of Jesus alone, that Mary was brought into the world, born, conceived, uh, without the stain of original sin, and that her yes remains, as uh, Pope Benedict says. She never says no to God her whole life. In other words, she remains in the grace of God, which is to say she wasn't by nature sinless, but rather by grace she was saved through faith, not that of herself. It was the gift of God. So there's no boasting in that. She was saved or preserved from original sin by the saving work of Jesus as, as that's anticipated, and it's given to her. She's brought into the world as a new creation, and she's given the place, the archetypal place, of woman. And so a promise is made in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in the New. Now, this will be the last thing I want to say, this promise and fulfillment, and how Mary stands in the the place of woman in this promise and fulfillment. Check this out. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27 and 28, there's a long list of blessings and curses for obedience that are given. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27 ends this way. Check this out. Cursed, verse 26 of Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who does not confirm 
the words of the law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. And that's where 27 ends and then 28 begins. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commands that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and shall overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. So here we have God saying through Moses to the people of Israel, if God finds among you a completely obedient person who never transgresses the law, then God will set them above all the nations and bless the fruit of their womb, their offspring. And here in the New Testament, again, we've got promise, right? This is the promise. Is that ever fulfilled? Is that promise ever fulfilled? And we're saying, yes, it is. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, the angel, by the way, here comes a supernatural creature to a woman, gives her a message. And what does she say? She says, be it unto me, in verse 38 of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, be it unto me, I'm the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. An exact uh, connection to that Deuteronomy 27, 28. Do it according to God's word. And then we find later when she goes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then a couple of verses down, it says uh, Mary in her Magnificat uh, says, um, the, the Lord has looked on the humble estate of his servant, verse 48, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So I want to pause right here and ask anybody who's watching this video just to pause right now and say, the Blessed Virgin Mary, because you'd be doing a very biblical thing right now if you were doing that, because the Bible said, the Bible says, all generations shall call me blessed. Okay, so Mary, is Mary the fulfillment of this promise um, that this, this obedient people shall be raised up above all the nations, their womb shall be blessed? Final text of scripture today from me is Luke chapter 11. Same gospel writer, Luke chapter 11, a text that I used to backhand Mary when I wasn't a Catholic, but one that actually connects to the biblical story and to what's said about Mary in Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 11, in verse 27, as Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What does Jesus do there? He says the blessing of, if I can say it this way, the blessing of my mother, the one whose womb carried me and whose breast nursed me, aren't just because I showed up, but it's because, if I can say it this way, she heard the word of God and kept it, which is what Elizabeth says she does. You heard the word of God and kept it. Blessed are you because you heard what God said and you did what God said to do, which is promise. You do that, I'll exalt you above the nations and blessed shall be your womb. Fulfillment. 
Mary says, I'll do it. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who hears God's word and does it. So all of these texts together, none of them all by themselves, but together as we do biblical theology, as we trace the arc of the biblical story of backwards and forwards in each direction, bring us to this conclusion that what God is doing in his son Jesus and in Mary, his mother, is giving us a second Adam and a second Eve. And Matt, that's how the early fathers talked about Mary, didn't they, in some of their early writings? Yeah, well, before I get into a very specific one where they did, I I just want to go back, because as you were talking about um, who fits the bill for who that woman is in the book of Revelation, well, the fathers have some stuff to say about that. They say it's Mary, but it's also the church. And you alluded to this. That's right. In many ways, Mary is an icon of the church, right? So what does Mary do? She receives the word of God. She bears it forth uh, in its in her very body and then presents it to the whole world. What does the church do? Receives the word of God, bears it in her very body, and promotes it to the world. What is every individual Christian supposed to do? Right? Receive the word of God, <laughs> you know, bear it forth to the world. So Mary's an icon of the church. And as you were rereading that, something struck me that I don't think I'd ever heard the same way. You know, thinking about the woman in Revelation and how the fathers talked about the woman in Revelation being both Mary and the church. I want to read something from Ephesians chapter 5, and you may be able even to quote this from memory because of all the weddings you two have done. Uh, between your time as Pentecostal and Baptist pastors. But listen to how the church is described in this passage from Ephesians 5, as we're talking about Mary being immaculately conceived and preserved from sin. So uh, Paul says in uh, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So far, so good. In order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of that kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. What did we read at the very beginning of this? What does the church say about the Immaculate Conception? By virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, she was preserved. That's right. It's a pretty pretty powerful thing to behold. Um, But speaking of the fathers, I just wanted to read one father. Uh, There are many more, but Irenaeus is my favorite in regard to all this imagery, especially the stuff you were saying about the new Eve, uh, Kenny. This is from Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 22, written in the 180s. Irenaeus has a direct connection back to John, who writes about Mary as woman in his Gospel and Revelation. Irenaeus says this. He says, Mary the Virgin is found obedient, saying, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. But Eve was disobedient, for she did not obey when as yet she was a virgin. Uh, Irenaeus goes on and says, This is a back reference from Mary to Eve, the inversion of the process by which these bonds of union had arisen, so that the former ties be canceled by the latter, that the latter, meaning Mary, may set the former, meaning Eve, again at liberty. And this is the, this is the closer, the, the, the mic drop from Irenaeus. He says, And thus also it was that the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. For what the virgin Eve had bound fast through unbelief, this did the virgin Mary set free through faith. This is not something that Kenny Burchard invented over a weekend and decided to do a 
episode of On the Journey about. This is the historic Christian understanding of how this all works. And that's what you get when you read the Bible with the church that has the living memory of who Mary was, that knows the biblical story, knows where it's headed, and knows whose faces, whose names go in all those places where the archetypes go. And Mary goes in the place of woman. Ken, you had some stuff you wanted to say about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, I I was just going to say that... (laughs) You see why we couldn't cover the Ark of the Covenant in this particular episode, right? Like we're, this is like an hour of just yeah. stuff on the New Eve. It's yeah. incredible. Well, I yeah, I was just going to say that that um, that um, Kenny has presented this theme of Mary, woman, Mary is the New Eve, and next week we're going to stay with the biblical material and we're going to work through another theme, which is the the theme of Mary and the Ark of the Covenant, and then after that though we're going to come back to history. And look at it in more depth. And so I'll just leave it at that. This has gone long enough. Yes, it has. And you, you can see why. There was just no way. No way we're fitting Ark of the Covenant into today. But uh, please do come check us out, chnetwork.org. We may have raised more questions for you than we answered. Who knows? Depending on where you are in your spot on the journey. Uh, come visit us also in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. And support this and other projects of the Coming Home Network by going to chnetwork.org slash compass. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleagues, Kenny Burchard and Ken Hensley. Thanks, gentlemen. We'll talk to you next week. See you later. See you next week.